Well, we are at that time of year as a family where uh, Reed is our oldest. He's eight. He's playing basketball on Saturday mornings. This is the second year we've done this. We're, we're joining those of you that spend your Saturdays and through the week taking your kids to different sporting events. The second year we've had basketball. It's a pretty phenomenal experience. If any, I mean, uh, it, it's not quite risen to the level of ESPN. There's no college scouts that are here attending this second grade basketball practice, but it is quite official. We gather at the elementary school here in Shemang. There's about between 30 and 40 kids that are all out there practicing at the same time. The coach's name is Mike. He's a great guy. Some of you might know him. What he's able to do with 40 kids in basketballs like blows my mind that he can keep them organized. Um, like I said, no college scouts. Uh, we're not actually uh, playing full drills and games yet. They're teaching him simple things like how to throw the ball, how to catch the ball, how to dribble the ball how to move their feet as they shuffle. It's quite impressive that he's able to keep that many kids organized and run these drills, and it's, it's really neat thing to be able to watch. He gets some of the dads out on the court, and every now and then they even get to shoot, and every now and then one of the balls actually goes through the hoop. It's unbelievable when that happens. The gym erupts. There's a lot of excitement. But you know what? For, for as incredible of a coach as Mike is being able to do this with 40 kids, you know one thing that I have never seen Mike do? He'll gather the kids around from time to time, and he gives them instructions. Not one time. He'll, he'll do different things where he'll, he'll get out extra uh, basketballs, or he'll use some kind of prop, or maybe he'll put down some little rubber discs on the floor that they're supposed to run to, and th these are place markers. Not one time has he ever gathered the kids around in the desiring to teach them the fundamentals of basketball, and he started handing out tennis rackets. This has never happened in the history of basketball practice at, at Indian Mills Elementary School on Saturday mornings. He's never distributed tennis balls to the kids because they're basketball players. Tennis rackets would be useless to basketball players. I think that makes sense. Tonight, uh, the, the Green Bay Packers will play the San Francisco 49ers, and unfortunately, we still haven't invented a system where both teams can lose, so one of them will come out as the winner. And... Could you imagine how silly it would be, all the players in their helmets and pads and uniforms and cleats, and could you imagine Aaron Rodgers lining up behind center for the Green Bay Packers, and he decided to forego the helmet, no, no shoulder pads, he's wearing black pants, a belt, a polo, he, he gets rid of the football, he hands the center a 16-pound round ball with, with holes in it for his fingers, and you look down and he's wearing bowling shoes. Could you, could you imagine seeing, that would be useless equipment for a football player. If you can picture some of these things, there are certain things that just make no sense. They are worthless. They are ineffective. They, they by their very nature, uh, disqualify you from what it is that you're involved in. If you're going deer hunting, you don't need to bring deep sea fishing gear with you. If you're baking dessert pastries, you don't want barbecue sauce. If you're running a marathon, you don't want to wear knee-deep snow boots. If you're putting a new roof on your house and you're replacing the asphalt shingles, the last thing you want to see show up is a dump truck with 20 tons of asphalt. That's not going to help you replace your roof. There are certain things that are just useless. They're worthless. They, they just don't fit. If you can wrap your mind around some of those analogies, then you're, you're going to understand what it means when Jesus says that Christians are salt and light. He makes a very, very 
It's a picture, an analogy that everyone would have recognized and understood this is who Christians are. This is the way that Christians have an impact in their world. In fact, it's so important that Christians act in this way. It's so important that Christians are be distinct and unique according to the way that Jesus instructs that when they are not, well, at best, they're ineffective, and at worst, they're useless, and perhaps not even at all a Christian. And so that ought to shock us a little bit. That ought to wake us up to tune in. What does Jesus mean when he says that Christians are salt and Christians are light? Because when you get it wrong, and if you claim to follow Christ, but you're not displaying the characteristics of a Christian that Jesus makes so clear in this sermon, well, at best, you're ineffective, and at worst, you might not be a Christian. And this is what Jesus wants to help us understand. What does it mean that Christians are salt and light? Let's try to walk through the passage a little bit together this morning to understand what, what was Jesus saying as he gathered his disciples around. He's teaching them. He's just finished his introduction. He's just finished the Beatitudes that we walked through last week. He's helped them understand there's certain characteristics that are true in the life of a Christian. Christians are poor in spirit, and that's how they truly receive the blessed good life. They're, they're, they're meek. They're pure in heart. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're even blessed. Christians are blessed when they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus gives a little bit more instruction, a little bit of commentary on persecution. So for now, we're going to jump over that, and we'll find ways to come back to it throughout this, the series on the Sermon on the Mount. But we're going to spend a little bit of time, even in it this morning, towards the end of our message. And I want you to think now about verse 13. Let's read together. Let me walk through these verses. Let me explain some things about the metaphors that Jesus was using, and then we'll try to apply them to our scenario as a church and as individual Christians. Here's what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. So before we try to get into understanding what that means about salt, the first thing that I want you to see in the way that Jesus says it, if you could see in the original language, the you is emphatic. It's in there twice. It's, Jesus is saying, you, you yourselves, in the way that Matthew has translated it for us, you, you yourselves and you only are the salt of the earth. It's very, very, Jesus is calling them out. Listen, my followers, Christians, disciples, it's you. You are the ones who are the salt of the earth. Now think about what this would mean for those who are listening in that day. They, they would have understood that, that the Israelites, God's chosen people, that they were supposed to be a light to the nations. They would have understood certainly that, that there was, a, in a spiritual sense, a light that was associated with the people of God. But Jesus is he's changing the paradigm. He's, he's changing the rules that the is played by. It's no longer the temple that serves as the light. It's certainly not the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as you're going to see later on. It's not even the law that was the way to receive the light. Jesus is saying, it's, it's you. You, my followers, are the salt of the earth. You're the salt and the light. Same thing in verse 14 when he says, you are the light of the world. Emphatic. You and you alone and nobody else. It's you, who is the salt of the earth, who is the light of the world. So what does it mean then that, that Christians act as salt? What does it mean that Christians are salt? If you think about how that word is used, 
uh, and how they would have understood the metaphor to be those who originally heard it. You and I today, if we describe someone as salty, uh, we're probably using it, an urban dictionary defines the word as someone who's easily agitated, someone who could be angry, aggressive. Wow, they woke up on the wrong side of the bed. They're salty today. That's not the way that Jesus was using it. There are many, many uses for salt, even in our day, just as there would have been in Jesus' day. Uh, if you think through some of the uses, here's just some of the ones that we wouldn't have time to explain all of them this morning, but it was used as a preservative to preserve or to prevent the decay. It was used as a flavor enhancer. It was used as a purifier. In small doses, it could be a fertilizer. There's many symbolic uses of salt throughout Scripture and in the ancient world as well. So salt was a common, uh, it was commonly used as a part of the sacrifices. It could be a sign of purity. It was symbolically used as wisdom. So how are we supposed to hear this and understand it when Jesus says that Christians are the salt of the earth and there's so many possible meanings associated with salt? Here, here, let me step away from the sermon for just a second. Let me step over here for just a second. When we approach Scripture, here's a common danger that we have to avoid, okay? When you read something in Scripture, one of the easiest things to do is to say, what does this mean to me? And to start with that question, to say, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. What do you get out of that? What does that mean to you? Before you can understand what it means to you, you've got to work hard to understand what did it mean to them. Jesus had words to say when, when the authors of Scripture wrote these letters. There are specific messages for specific people at a specific time, and we are not meant to read this book as a collection of inspirational sayings and say, wow, what did you get out of that? What does that mean to you? Before you can ask and answer the question of what it means to you, you've got to do the hard work of getting back to, well, how, how did the author intend this to be understood? How would the original audience and hearers have understood this message? Only then can we say, well, now how should we apply it? What meaning does it have for our context today? Okay? Parenthesis on Bible study aside, we'll jump back into our sermon. So what did Jesus mean when he said, you are the salt of the earth? Again, there's so many positive meanings, so many various meanings of salt that I think we would be doing the metaphor a disservice if we tried to pick a particular one and press the metaphor too far. If we were to try to say, look, uh, I think what Jesus means here is that we as Christians have a pres preservation effect in the world around us. While that may be true and there might be certain application, there's a whole lot of other meanings. It could be any one of those other things that I listed as well. I think we would be better off to say when Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, salt was a very well-known, valuable, and good aspect of society. Many beneficial uses for it. Jesus' emphasis is not on the positive aspect of what salt is. His emphasis is on what happens when salt stops being salt. Notice the rest of the verse. Come back to verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Do you catch it? That's Jesus' main emphasis. His main point is, he's telling them, Look, you, you are like salt for the earth, and he doesn't describe everything he wants them to know and understand about what that means. There's other places in Scripture that will help us receive our marching orders. He's just simply saying, you are the salt of the earth, which is a good, valuable thing, and it's intended to have a very specific effect on the world around it. But his emphasis is, what happens when salt stops being salt? What happens when salt loses its flavor? What happens when salt, which is by nature salt, stops being salt? It's worthless. It's useless. 
It, it has no impact. It, it, it's, it's at best ineffective, and at worst, it's useless. It's useless. It's no longer salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt lost its taste, that, that word that's translated for us, if the salt loses its flavor, if the salt loses its taste, it's a word that's only used four times in Scripture, once here and once in Luke, and it's translated loses its taste. But the more common meaning of the word was, was to become foolish, to be, to be shown foolish, to be, to be made foolish or to be bland, to be uh, worthless is the wrong concept. But, but the idea here is that when salt is shown to be foolish, when salt, when salt is shown to be not salt, what good is it? Can you restore salt to salt? Now, I'm not a chemist. I don't understand how this works, but salt is a, is a relatively stable con- compound, sodium chloride. You, 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 there's really no way for salt to stop being salt. If salt is salt, then it's salt. Jesus is, he, he, for those in that day, how did they get their salt? Many, much of the salt was gathered from salt marshes, and there would be a, a lot of material that would have been mined, that would have been brought for use, whether it was to preserve food, whether it was used to purify, whether it was used in medicine, whatever it might be. And, and there was a lot of salt that was gathered that wasn't pure salt. It, it, it looked like salt, but it didn't have the characteristics of salt. There were, there were so many impurities mixed in that it could no longer serve its purposes as salt, at which point it became worthless for its intended purposes that you would normally use salt for. You couldn't use it to preserve meat. You couldn't use it in the ways that you ordinarily would. At that point, the best thing you can do with it is throw it out like garbage. You could throw it out along the road. There is evidence that in ancient world, salt was salt that salt, and I put that in quotes, that was gathered for salt purposes that was shown to be impure and not able to be used was simply just ground up the way that we would use gravel and thrown along the road and it would be trampled under people's feet. So that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, salt is a great thing. You Christians are the salt of the world. But, it, but if you Christians don't act like Christians, if you, if you are shown to be foolish in the sense that you, you truly aren't displaying the qualities and characteristics of Christians, you, you've now lost the purpose for which God has made you Christians. You, you are no longer serving your intended purpose. You're no longer having the influence and the impact in the world that God designed for his followers. We have a quote for you on the screen in the bulletin. It's by a man named John Stott, and here's what he has to say. Christian saltiness is Christian character as depicted in the Beatitudes. Committed Christian discipleship exemplified in both deed and word. For effectiveness, the Christian must retain his Christ-likeness as salt must retain its saltness. If Christians become assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. You see, Jesus is helping Christians understand what is our role, what is our job, and when Christians stop acting like Christians, well, that doesn't make sense. That, that's, that's worthless. That's useless. Just in the way that to have salt that doesn't, isn't actually salt just needs to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Well, Jesus repeats the analogy again, changing the metaphor just slightly to help us understand, again, another concept. He says it this way then in verse 14. You are the light of the world. You you and you alone, it's, it's you yourselves who are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp and put it, light a lamp and put it under a basket 
but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus is saying, listen, Christians, you are the light of the world. It's my followers, it's my disciples who display light into darkness. What's the purpose for light? Light illuminates darkness. What would have happened in that day and age when you couldn't walk to the wall and flip a switch? You would light a lamp. If it was dark and you needed to be able to see, you would light a lamp. And, and the last thing you would do is hide the light. Instead, you would set it on a stand. There was a stand where the lamp would go, and it would cast light throughout all of the house. Could you imagine how silly it would be if we were all in a, a cave together? We decided to take a field trip to North Jersey. And in the northwest part of the state, I'm assuming there's caves in the northwest. Can someone confirm for me that there are caves in New Jersey in the northwest part where there's hills? Maybe even around here. I have no clue. But let's just say we're in the northwest, right? And we're all in, in a cave up there, and we uh, uh, have no lights. And one of us decided to bring a flashlight. We have light. And we were, we were in total darkness, and uh, for, the, for our purposes, it's me who brought the light. And then I said, don't worry, I've got the light. I also have a coffee mug. There we go. Now let's, let's go. Let's, let's walk through the cave. This would be, well, this would be useless. This, this totally defeats the purpose for which the light was created, why we brought the light in the first place. The, the, in the same way, that's Jesus' point. No, it's, it's inconceivable. It's unthinkable that if it was dark and you wanted to light the room, you'd light the lamp and then you'd take a, a, a large basket, much bigger than a coffee mug, and you'd, you'd set it over the lamp. It, well, that just doesn't even make sense. That, 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 that simply is not the way that, that light works. In the same way that you couldn't take a city with all the, the lights lit up in the houses and you couldn't put that city on a hill and you could not hide that city, Christians are light and their light cannot be hidden. It pierces the darkness. John, one of Jesus' disciples, is going to pick up on this light and darkness analogy. He's going to use it in the letters that he wrote. It's one of the things that we looked at as a church as we walked through 1 John. And there's just certain things that, that are true of Christians. And Jesus is saying is that Christians are the light of the world. The world is a very dark place. The, the, the world needs to understand the true light of the gospel, and it's Christians who bear that light. It's Christians who show the world around them what, what light looks like, what the light of the gospel looks like. And yet, when Christians don't act like Christians, when Christians don't display the characteristics and the character traits of what a Christian really looks like, well, it's the same thing as taking a lamp and lighting it and putting a basket over it. It's useless. It's worthless. And so Jesus wants to help them understand, help us understand, well, what is our role? What is our job as Christians? Look then at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, listen, Christians, your light needs to be on display so that then the world around you will watch. And who gets the glory? It's God who gets the glory so that other people, as they see our lives, they, they, they see God. They glorify God. They recognize God as good. Later on in the sermon, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to be condemned for the fact that they do good works so that they will get glorified. But here Jesus is saying, Christians, put your works on display so that God gets glory, so that other people see who God is. So how are we supposed to do this? By the way, before I get to how we're supposed to do this, there's something interesting I want you to see in the sermon. This is the second command, only the second time that Jesus has said, 
in, a, in an imperative with the force of a command, let your light shine. The first time we got a command was back in verse 12 when Christians are told to rejoice when they face persecution. We'll look at that for a minute. Here's why I think that's significant and important. Other commentators have pointed it out. Realize that for 10 verses, for 10 verses, Jesus has been saying, here's what you are. Here's, who Christ, here's what a Christian is. Jesus is, before he ever gets to, here's what you're supposed to do, he's reminding them, here's who you are. He's encouraging them and supporting them and building them up. This is what a Christian is. He enforces it. He builds it into them over and over and over. Before he ever gets to, here's what a Christian does. He says, here's what you are. Here's who I've made you to be. Here's, here in my gospel grace is what a Christian is. And only then does he tell Christians to rejoice in the face of persecution and does he tell Christians to let their light shine. It's a very encouraging note and one that I think would be important for us to recognize even in our own discipleship efforts. Okay, he does tell Christians to let their light shine. How? How are Christians supposed to let their light shine? How is it that our good works and our good deeds are supposed to display who God is? How are they supposed to be salt and light in the midst of the world around us? Here's what's very important for us to recognize, I think, as we go through this. Keep in mind that you cannot separate this idea of being salt and light from the rest of the sermon. Don't forget that. I think too often we pull salt and light out of this and then we define what we think being salt and light means and we, we go on these warrior causes trying to change and influence culture around us. Keep in mind that Jesus, after he has walked through the Beatitudes, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So whatever it means to be salt and light is defined by the Beatitudes, is defined by the content of the rest of the sermon. It's the people who are poor in spirit who are going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's the people who are meek who are going to be salt and light. It's the people who are pure in heart. Listen, if, if you think your job description is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and yet the things that are going to be listed as true in this sermon aren't true of your life, you're probably having the negative impact in the world uh, opposite of what you think you're supposed to be having in the world. If the Beatitudes aren't true in your life, there's no way you're going to be able to be the salt and light that you are intending to have. And that's the way that God set it up. That's how it is that we're supposed to let, so let our light shine. So we shine as we reflect the character that God has created his children to be. So let your light shine in this way that they may see your good works. What does it mean to do good works in this sense that Jesus is saying? You might have in your mind that you need to start a certain ministry or that you need to do good works in helping the, 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 those that are less fortunate than you or perhaps you think good works, we have this image in our mind of helping little old ladies across the street and we're trying to tally up the good works that we've done. Well, I think that that's an incorrect understanding according to what Jesus is going to say. Our good works, our good deeds are defined throughout the content of the rest of the sermon. He's going to start making it very clear. Listen, here's some of the good works. When you do some of these good things, your light will shine as a light in the darkness. People who manage their anger in a godly way, verse 21 through the end of the verse. Those, those whose marriages, those whose moral lives, those, the, those who control their passions, speaking of both lust and divorce, those whose marriages reflect Christ, those who are truthful with their words, verse 33, those whose, whose word actually means what they say it means. 
Verse 38, those who retaliate, those who are involved in anger and retaliation in an inappropriate way, well, that's not the good works that will shine light to the Father. You could walk all the way through the rest of the sermon, and these are some of the good deeds that as we live our lives in this way, with, with Christ-like character, it will, it will shine and reflect to the watching world around us. Think about some of the most salt and light Christians that you know in your sphere. Think about those that are making a difference in the world around them, that, that just by the very character and nature of their lives. My, my guess is, is that some of those names and individuals that are coming to your mind, they are quiet, gentle, Christ-honoring, godly people of good character who match the description of the Christian that Jesus is portraying in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the types of people that we ought to strive to be like. These are the character and the fruit of our lives that ought to be expressed as salt and light in the world around us. So as we do this, there will be Christians from Shawnee Baptist Church who go out into their workplaces and in just simple, normal, everyday ways, in the, in the sphere that God has placed you in, as you reflect Christ, you will be salt and light in the sphere that God has put you in. By the integrity with which you make decisions, by, by the attitude and character with which you treat coworkers, by the work ethic that you exhibit in the workplace, you, you will be salt and light in, in that aspect. We will have families in our communities that in their neighborhoods and in their schools, salt and light doesn't necessarily mean going and revamping everything to do with the community. It just means being a faithful witness in the sphere that God has placed you in, such that you display God's character as he's already listed in the Beatitudes, what Jesus has portrayed in that sense. For, for those of you who are, um, if you are uh, in the early years of parenting, like my family is finding ourselves, and you are exhausted and worn out, and perhaps even for my wife who is a stay-at-home mom, and you don't have as many opportunities as I've listed in some of the workplaces areas, how are you salt and light? You, you will have an impact beyond what you can fathom when you display the salt and light characteristics that Jesus has described in the Beatitudes through, think of the countless appointments that you are setting up with medical professionals, with playdates with other moms, with kids that your children interact with and the other moms that you get to interact with. There will be salt and light opportunities that, that, that are beyond what you can fathom. Think of the hearts of your children that you are shaping and the souls that you are having an influence on some of the ones that are in darkness that need the salt and light of the gospel for which God has entrusted to you as his followers. That is an incalculable, immeasurable privilege that, that our families are getting to take on in this day and age. Our seniors, the opportunity that you will have uh, to, to impact the world around you to, by your attitude, by your spirit, by your temperament, by the words you use, you, you will stand out as lights in darkness compared to others around you when you display the gospel and the hope that God has given us through the person of Jesus Christ. When your life is characterized as poor in spirit, as pure in heart, as being a peacemaker, 
as hungering and thirsting for righteousness, there is a salt and light effect in the world around you that is of valuable, valuable importance. As we do this, church, in workplaces, in homes, in communities, in neighborhoods, what can we expect from the world around us? How will the world receive us? This is where I want to come back to verse 11 and 12. Let's not be deceived into thinking that Jesus' point by us being salt and light was that we could somehow Christianize our world was that we could somehow build a Christian utopia such that now everyone will understand how great it is to be a Christian. What can we expect as we live as salt and light Christians? What will be the world's response? Here's how some of it will go. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We can understand and we need to realize and not lose heart in the fact that not everyone will respond with favor to the Christian salt and light presence in the world around us. There will be persecution that comes. There will be hardship for the Christian who chooses to live in salt as salt and light in the way that God has intended. But that's nothing new in Christianity. And it shouldn't cause us to get discouraged. And in fact, some will respond. That's why, that's why Jesus tells us to let our light shine because others will see the good works and they will give glory to God in heaven. There are some that God has chosen to call out of the darkness. And part of the way he has chosen to do that is through yours and my salt and light influence in the world around us. So let's take heart in that and let us not be discouraged when some don't receive it. That's the way it has worked throughout the world. That the Old Testament can give evidence of the fact that when God sends prophets, messengers, those who were bringing light, those who were bringing the truth, many of them were persecuted. In fact, we're going to gather here at the close of our service and we're going to remember the, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate one who brought the message of truth. John calls him the light of the world in his gospel. Not everyone responded. In fact, he was crucified, murdered, his body broken, his blood shed for the truth that he proclaimed, for his influence in the world of proclaiming the truth. He perfectly embodied the Beatitudes. He perfectly lived a Christ-like, godly life. He, he was the one that was entirely righteous, and yet the world rejected him, and so too will they do to us his followers in certain times of life, in certain seasons of life, especially in certain areas of the world. And we should not lose heart in that. In fact, it ought to make us grateful that, that Christ was willing to enter this world, to take on human flesh, to bear the punishment for our sins, so that any of us who realize that we, we cannot be made right with God on our own were it not for Christ's work on the cross, we can turn from our sins, place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and find forgiveness, find eternal life. We can be his followers, his children. And may then, by his grace, he continue to work in our hearts, that he would work in our hearts that reality of being salt and light, that we would portray that to the world around us, that he would be glorified in and through our lives. Let's close together in prayer. Father, we come to you and we are grateful for 
the truth of your gospel, which has brought salvation into our hearts and lives. We're, we're grateful for the gospel, which makes known to us the truth of who you are. It reveals to us our sin, our need for salvation, our need for a savior. We're thankful that the light of the world has come, that the light of the world was willing to be slain, that the light of the world was willing to have his body broken so that we could find salvation and eternal life and forgiveness. Father, for us as a church, would you help us to be faithful in fulfilling our duties as salt and light in the world? Would you help us to be faithful in, in receiving these identities that we would recognize who you've created us to be and live in your grace such that we would be effective witnesses in the world around us so that you might be honored and glorified. We ask and pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.